a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're having a fantastic Tuesday out there. We're continuing our drive in the extended version of Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Great to be with you on a Tuesday. And uh, we're going to shift a little bit here. And obviously, one of the things that has come out of the uh, tragedy uh, in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, and of course, President Trump made specific reference to violent video games. And we wanted to to drill down on that just a a little bit and uh, get some expert insight because there's a a lot of debate going on in terms of what's the impact of violent video games. Is it significant? Is it just a factor? Is it something we need to really watch? What is it? Uh, And so we're very pleased to be joined on Inside Sources uh, by Caroline Knorr, who's the senior parenting editor at Common Sense. Uh, Caroline, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so from, from your perspective, you've obviously uh, seen a lot of the research and a lot of the data. Uh, what's the, the quick takeaway for you in terms of uh, what role do these uh, violent video games play, particularly in young men? Right. Well, I think, you know, what the research says is that vi- playing violent video games and having a lot of exposure to violent media um, it can be triggering um, to people who are already vulnerable. And what I mean by vulnerable is someone who may have a mental illness, um, someone who is living in a home with violence or in an environment where they are treated um, hostily. Um, so what the research shows is that there can be some causality if a person who has those vulnerabilities plays a lot of violent video games. But with the general public, um, violent video games don't seem to have causality, Mm -hmm. but there could be a correlation, Mm -hmm. which means a lot of people who play super violent video games may commit violent crimes and but no one knows if there's a, if it causes it. Right, right. Okay, and that's very important to have that dis- distinction uh, uh, in terms of the, that connection. I don't point. think that people should automatically um, accept that there is a relationship between violent video games and violent crime, and I don't think that people should automatically dismiss it. I believe that we do need to have more research on it, but at this point what we do know now, I mean, and violent video games are really, really, really violent, and they are incredibly immersive and real and put the player in in 
the role of a killer, you know. Mm-hmm. But some research shows that playing those kind of games can actually be um, vicarious. Mm-hmm. So people who may act would have acted out violently in the real world instead oh, choose to put that energy into a game. Interesting. That's really so fascinating. So it could be even a mediating thing. Yeah. Um, we, we really, while the research shows right now that really this is um, a, an issue for people who already have vulnerabilities. And so what I actually heard, you know, people saying, well, we can't say that people who commit these crimes automatically have mental illness or people who ha- play violent video games and commit crimes automatically have mental illness. And that's, I, I don't even believe that the research would support that. Yes. What I'm saying is people who are vulnerable and can't be triggered. And usually that's in a, a person who is in growing up in an environment um, that is violent or hostile or cruel. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's an, a really important uh, set of distinctions, I think, as people are are looking and uh, and assessing, what do I do? Do we still play these games? Do we allow our young people to? Uh, and a lot of it, of course, comes back to just good parenting in terms of being engaged with your kids and watching for those signs. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically uh, two kind of a two parter uh, here, and and the first part of that is just the the isolating factor. So often you've got kids that are you know sitting in a room for hours and hours and hours on end with a headset on and and not interacting with people face to face so there's kind of that isolation uh component to it uh so let me start with that where does uh what does that play into uh, some of the things we should be watching as parents yes that actually has been studied um and what the research shows so far is that it's unknown whether a person isolates themselves due to um, antisocial being antisocial, or if the um, if <laughs> if um, they are if they're isolating themselves intentionally mm-hmm. or as a byproduct from their obsession with video games. So we don't know conclusively about that. I I do think that that video games and all media, you know, common sense media really does believe that all of these games and even movies and apps and all this media is designed to be manipulative and to hook users in engaging in the media for a longer period than the user even knows that it's not healthy for them. So they do it to the point of being self-destructive. And self-destructive could be isolating, you know, isolating themselves. So they know it's not good for them, but they still do it. And I think that one of the things that parents should be aware of is that um, games, and, and kids even know this, like they know that they're playing longer than is really healthy for them. Right. Um, but they can't stop because kids don't really have an off switch. <laughs> and that's why parents need to be there to help to say, you know what, it's time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You've had three hours. But, but also I think that engaging with your kid and finding out more about what they like about the game determining um, a good stopping point in mm-hmm, the game because mm-hmm. sometimes kids don't want to get off because they're like, well, I was just in the middle of this. I'm right there. Whatever. <laughs> Five more <laughs> so minutes, mom. Can, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but sometimes as a parent, you just have to say, you're done. I'm done with this, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you can negotiate, I do think that there are some warning signs. A lot of times kids will isolate themselves because they 
you know, they don't have friends in the real world, mm-hmm. or they are bullied, or, you know, something that really f- makes them feel marginalized. And so they go to video games, and again, they are encouraged to keep playing because of the design of the game itself is right. addictive. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Very good. If you're just joining us, uh, we've got uh, Caroline Nor, uh, who is the senior parenting editor at Common Sense, and uh, appreciate her insight and perspective. Caroline, we've got just about a minute left. Uh, any other warning signs or things that you wish every parent would think about uh, as it relates to video games? I I do think that the isolation that you brought up is a really important factor. Um, I mean, kids do play multiplayer games with a lot of other people online, and those relationships can feel really real to them and Mm -hmm. strengthening. Um, But I think that parents don't always necessarily know about the conversations that are happening while the game is being played. And you can have a conversation about the game in the game either you know, in a chat in the game or on another platform, as has been discussed in this news media, uh, platforms like Discord, you know, they're chat apps where you can basically right. hook them into the game. So I think parents should ask their kids, who are you talking to? What are you guys talking about? Um, really try and engage them and, uh, and get the child to um, talk to you about um, their feelings as they're playing and and maybe do you know when a good stopping point is for yourself or do you need me to step in and and tell you to get off? Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that the quality of the relationships and the quality of the environment that the kid is interacting with, which could be an online environment, is what's really important. Yeah, fantastic. Great insight. Caroline Knorr, Senior Parenting Editor at Common Sense. Thanks so much for joining us on Inside Sources today. Appreciate your insight. All right. Uh, again, great, uh, great perspective there from Caroline. Uh, always appreciate to what she has to bring and, and just great perspective. Common sense uh, is a lot of it and uh, really watching for some of those signs. Uh, real quickly, I wanted to uh, to hit uh, something that was in the Los Angeles Times in terms of some of the uh, patterns that they have found. They've studied uh, every mass shooting uh, since 1966. Uh, and there are some some common things that there was uh, some sort of childhood trauma, whether it's exposure to violence or a, a parent suicide or sexual abuse or physical abuse or neglect. Uh, second common thing they found was that there was some sort of crisis point in the weeks or months leading up to it. Uh, bullying, uh, losing a job, a, you know, a relationship ending. Those are all in there. Uh, most of them uh, had. Uh, sought validation uh, and looking at other shooters, I think, was the uh, the fourth component uh, and having the means to actually carry it out. Uh, so all interesting triggers, interesting things to watch. We're going to continue our conversation. This is Boyd Matheson. I am the opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on Inside Sources. One more hour to go. Don't go anywhere. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor... You'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind 
only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.